Hello and welcome to The Booking Club with Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'm going to be speaking to two authors over dinner about their latest books. They are Remy Adekoya, author of It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth, and Kenan Malik, author of Not So Black and White. We meet at Hopper's in King's Cross. By far the most packed restaurant we've ever had here on the Booking Club. And I'm sat with Remy Adekoya and Kenan Malik. Remy teaches politics at the University of York and is the author of Biracial Britain, a book previously featured on the Booking Club, albeit under lockdown back yes, in 2021. Yes, yes. Uh, Kenan is an observer columnist, broadcaster and lecturer, and you may have heard him before on BBC Radio's The Moral Maze. His previous books include The Quest for a Moral Compass, and From Fatwa to Jihad, which was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. We are here to talk about your respective new books that have been released this year. Remy, yours, It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth, and Kenan, Not So Black and White. Now, I was going to say, we'll, we'll start with your book in a moment, Remy, but Kenan, could you explain, first of all, why you chose Hopper's in King's Cross as your favourite restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> well, funnily enough, I chose it because I thought it'd be fairly quiet. Most of the restaurants, my favourite ones, are restaurants which are pretty noisy. They're small and noisy. And I thought they'd be terrible for, for doing a podcast <laughs> interview. So I thought, let's come here. I, I like it very much. But... It's very noisy at the moment. It so. is today, absolutely heaving, thriving. And, uh, and Remy, you've never been here before. No, I haven't, but I'm looking forward to um, uh, having a taste to eat here because I'm, uh, I'm a foodie. And could you describe the menu to us? It's Sri Lankan. Um, you don't get many Sri Lankan restaurants in London. You get India, lots of Indian restaurants, but they're mainly North Indian restaurants, effective North Indian food. And Sri Lankan food is closer to South Indian food than it tastes to North Indian food. Right, okay. So tell us a bit about some of the dishes here that you recommend we order, because I'm completely a uh, fish out of water in this respect. Well, I, you know, if, if you want something really nice, some, a hopper, like an egg hopper, and the um, black pork curries is really nice. All right. If you're adventurous, you can have the, uh, the marrow, the bone marrow. I always love bone marrow. Can never get enough of it, but it says here there's a part of the menu that says how to order. So there's a certain method. Well, you, you order what you like and share. That, that's the best thing to do here. Perfect, perfect. That sounds great. All right. Well, once they come over, then we can have a look, and maybe, maybe Kenan, you'll have to sort of uh, order for us and, yeah. just, and just use your intuition about what would work. I assume there's no dietary requirements, no allergies. No, for me, no. I eat everything. <laughs> Remy, let's start with your new book. Yes. It's not about whiteness. It's about wealth. Yes. The title gets straight to the point, and there's even an urgency about the title the readers might suspect comes from a place of frustration on your part. We spoke about your previous book, Biracial Britain, a few years ago, as I've just mentioned, and I've been wondering what you've been thinking about ever since. What has led you to write a book that seeks to drive this point home since your last book? So generally speaking, I've been sort of trying to get at the core of what exactly the problem is, you know, with this whole race equation. Uh, one thing that really struck me in the summer of 2020 when we had the Black Lives Matter protest was not the reaction of African-Americans in the U.S., not even the reaction of black Britons here in Britain, but the reactions of Africans living in African countries. That's fascinating. So African Twitter. Right. So I was really even a bit taken aback 
by sort of how Kenyan Twitter, Nigerian Twitter, Zambian Twitter, they were all on fire. And they were all sort of, you know, responding to that message of, you know, which, which was coming out of America from the Black Lives Matter movement. People were really, you know, angry, um, outraged. And, you know, and people started, you know, sharing stories about, you know, their experiences, either having been to America or some other Western country, or even people who would actually never even traveled out of an African country. And that even surprised me more. I was like, you know, how come people who've never met a white American police officer in their lives and may never meet a white police officer in their lives, why are they so upset about you? What's going on here? And what were you hearing? So the key frustration that is there is that idea which the Black Lives Matter movement had tapped into that really there does seem to still exist an implicit racial order in the world, an implicit racial hierarchy that generally speaking, broadly speaking, positions white people at the top, black people at the bottom and everyone else somewhere in between. And, you know, and this idea that, you know, oh, we black people, this is what my, you know, African friends or black friends, you know, were sort of articulating or complaining about seem to be seen as mattering less of lesser status, uh, don't seem to have that much agency in the world, don't seem to be able to decide things. It seems to be these white people deciding all the things, you know, they get to run the World Banks and the IMFs, they decide what's what. And we just seem to, you know, be constantly feeling powerless or almost so, in collective terms, okay? Because I know also many successful black people who are individually successful, but even they sort of share this kind of frustration that that implicit racial order exists. And so I said, okay, fine. This anger and frustration is clearly there. I agree with that diagnosis that a racial order does exist, an implicit one. So the question then becomes, you know, what's behind this? What's sustaining this? So, you know, two, 300 years ago, the answer would be, you know, colonialism. Four, 500 years ago, the answer would be the slave trade. That's what keeps the order in place. But, you know, we don't have colonialism anymore. We don't have the slave trade anymore. Yet that order is still felt by a lot of people. And so what's sustaining it? And then I said, okay, fine. You know, all hierarchies reflect differences in power and status. Yeah, that's what really decides, you know, who is up, who is down. And so, okay. What is it that decides which racial groups, broadly speaking, have more power and status than other groups? And that's where I came to the answer of wealth, collective wealth. And the reason how this connects to sort of race is because, you know, of course, the world, the sort of global economy is organized into national economies. That's what the world, that's the chief division of the world, I'd say I see. And so you have very rich countries, white majority countries, there's almost three dozen well-off affluent, you could say, white majority countries, counting here in Europe and, and, and in the general West, broadly speaking. And then you have the black majority countries that tend to be the poorest, you know, and this is reflected in all sorts of figures, etc. And the reason why, you know, the connection there between nations and race is because at the end of the day, even though we all live in diverse countries and countries have diverse ethnic groups, almost every country in the world has a clear racial majority. Yeah, the Africans, Sub-Saharan Africa, predominantly black, Europe still predominantly white. And so when you have wealth concentrated in certain nations, that also maps, it correlates, you know, with sort of racial groups. Yeah. And that's why I started trying to get at sort of, OK, fine. These are the figures. You have the GDP per capita and all that. So how does this now affect people's real lives, everyday lives? Why should this matter to people? And then I looked at these various spheres. So I have a chapter on each of them in the book. So that of the media how this, you know, affects everyday dynamics of media, global media, which media sort of have the biggest say, etc. The technology world, international influence, 
global knowledge production, so academia. So there's a lot of frustration definitely among a lot of especially black and brown academics who I know who I work with that you know knowledge production is still centered in the West. That is still Britain, America and the Western places and there's a lot of sort of you know frustration at that. So I try to look at okay why? Why is it that you know knowledge production is, cent is centered you know? Is it just because the British want it to be so? It's not just a matter of will. And then I got into the resources and then I came up you know I found out figures like for instance you know Universities like Oxford and Cambridge each have like, you know, budgets of over two billion pounds. That's larger than Nigeria's education budget. So the budget of a single university in the UK, larger than the education budget of the largest black nation on earth. Not to speak of the universities there, you know. So a lot of these issues revolve around resources. So you've tracked through your research in the run up to writing this book, the kind of paradigm shifts from colonialism to the slave trade, although, you know, arguably that's a corollary of colonialism. Yes, yes. Right through to the structure of wealth today, which, as you say, in a globalized economy, revolves around national GDP, inherited wealth, family income, etc. And one fact that jumped out to me is where you say, quote, if you created a single economy comprising all the 60 plus black majority countries in the world, including the Caribbean nations, their combined GDP still wouldn't amount to Germany's four trillion figure which is pretty stark. Yes, it is. Now, you mentioned coming to the UK a while back, but Kenning, your experience of, of racial discrimination and racism more generally was quite different, I assume, to that which you've experienced, Remy. And it's something that you, you speak about on the first page, in the first chapter uh, of your book. Is that a good place to start, to say how this book has been the culmination of many years thinking about race from the perspective of somebody who has very much been on the receiving end of racial discrimination? Britain, from when I was growing up, it was a very different place to what Britain is now. You know, I grew up when racism was vicious and visceral, woven into the fabric of society, when stabbings and firebombings and uh, murders were almost routine events. But when I was in my late teens, I was organising street patrols to protect Asian families from racist attacks. Um, and it's a very different place now. It's a completely different place than Britain was in the 70s and 80s. Racism that drew me into politics and political campaigning. Uh, campaigning against racist attacks, campaigning against police brutality. Because the one thing you ne never would do was go to the police. Because you were as likely to be arrested as the racists were. In fact, more likely to be arrested than the racists were. Deportations and so on. Something that, that I think already your two books meet on is this point you make in your book, Remy, that I want to ask you about, Kenan, which is where you say a race debate not embedded in detailed material realities is intellectual masturbation. And I think what you're alluding to there, Kenan, is that your understanding of what there was to gain for oppressed ethnic minorities used to be interwoven and intimately bound up with those material realities. So I suppose you would agree, right? Yeah, I, I, intellectual masturbation is not my phrase, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> what would you call it? <laughs> um, we could call it identity politics, I suppose, because that's what yeah. you're alluding to, mm -hmm. no? In a, yeah. in a, yes. There, there are no confusions about identity politics. Identity politics has always been there. I mean, it's not a new phenomenon. If you go in, in anti-colonial, anti-racist movements, there have always been a strand of identity politics. So we had the Back to Africa movements in, 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 the, in the 19th century, which were 
and movements, particularly in America, uh, which saw that, uh, which argued that the way to, uh, to, to escape slavery was for, for black people in America to move to, to Africa. Um, there was Garveyism, there was Pan-Africanism, uh, there was Negritude. So th these movements have always been there, but they were relatively marginal. There were moments in which they became important. So Garveyism became important around the First World War, Pan-Africanism around the Second World War. But largely the political outlook that, that defined anti-colonialism, anti-racism, until the last 50 years was that of a universalist perspective. The idea that equal rights was equal rights for all, that what we fought for was for everyone to be treated in the same way, and that the problem was not black people or white people. The problem was a system that enforced racial segregation, racial discrimination, and it was in fighting that system um, that we needed to change society. That's what in the book I call the radical universalist tradition. But that tradition relied on the belief that it was possible to transform society, that we, could ha we had the organizations, the means, and the politics to, to transform society. And it's that belief in transformation that has eroded over the past 40, 50 years. Because the organizations that embodied that sense of the possibilities of transformation have largely disappeared. The labor movement has become much weaker. Working class organizations have been, become much weaker. The, the radical social movements have largely disappeared. The old anti-colonial movements in Africa and Asia have become largely corrupted. Not just corrupted and transformed from their original place. People look upon them and look upon those kinds of organizations with great disenchantment. They haven't brought the changes that were promised. So in all those senses, that the idea of social transformation has largely eroded. We, we have a, a sense of social pessimism about the possibilities of change. And in that process, people more and more have clung on to their narrow identities because that becomes a place of refuge. It's as if you can find solace with other people who are like you, are victimized like you, and so on. And so that's the major shift that has taken place over the past 40, 50 years. The, the rise of social pessimism, the decline of movements of social change has pushed people into thinking more and more in terms of their own narrow identities. There's a lot said about critical race theory. Some of the critiques of critical race theories are, are useful. Some of them are uh, bananas. But what is really understood about critical race theory is that it comes out of that sense of social pessimism. So if you take a, a contemporary American uh, writer like uh, Tanasi Coates, who's you know, one of the most prominent African-American essayists, he likens racism to a natural disaster. And it says just as social movements or the Lord cannot stop an earthquake or a typhoon, nor will it ever stop racism. And it's that sense of there is nothing much we can do to transform this, and yet we have to keep fighting. That sense that racism is ineradicable, and yet you have to fight it. If you believe that, what happens is that 
you shift from thinking about anti-racism in material terms, that it is about the material betterment of minorities, to thinking about it in symbolic uh, representational terms. And it's, and it's been disastrous when it comes to thinking about race and anti-racism. Remy, I was about to ask you about how you interpret what Kennan has just given us there, which, um, again, much explored in the book, this trajectory and evolution of intellectual movements, social movements, from your perspective as somebody who's writing about present-day Africans and people living in the global south, I was going to ask where you see their perspective in relation to what Kennan has just said. Yeah, so when I, when I refer to the term uh, intellect, when I said a race debate not uh, embedded in detailed material realities is intellectual masturbation, I meant in the sense that uh, a race debate which is only about the exchange of, you know, ideas and around symbolism is never going to change the sort of fundamentals of the race equation. So growing up, and it essentially can just boil down to being argument for argument's sake, uh, you know, we win a moral argument, but then find what next. So, okay, growing up in Nigeria, Nigeria is a very pragmatic culture. I think most countries of the global south, which are far less affluent, are very pragmatic cultures. Would they look at us and say, this is intellectual masturbation, what they're up to? They would say, okay, um, what's the end result of this? What can be the end result of this? If, if the end result of this cannot be some kind of improvement in people's material living conditions, a lot of people there would generally say, then it's just a waste of time, yeah? You intellectuals, quote-unquote, up there are having this nice argument. Uh, you are generally perhaps not rich people, but, you know, well-off, comfortable. You don't have to worry about these material things we have to worry about every day of our lives. So you are up there with your fancy arguments. What does that do for us? This would be the response. So growing up in Nigeria there, in the 1990s, very difficult economic situation in Nigeria has, has almost always been the case. And there was a wave of emigration from the country. You had people from the middle class, educated people, educated Nigerians, professionals, coming to the UK and to the US and having to do, you know, odd jobs, work as taxi drivers, even as cleaners, you know, work in social care and things like that. And we'd hear the stories of these people when they came back and from their families. And, you know, and they would come back sometimes, you know, and talk about how they were, you know, condescended towards and looked down on. And, you know, and when the issue would be raised that, okay, but, you know, why do you go there? Or why would you do that? The answer was always the same. We have no choice. We need the money. So the fundamental weakness of the position of the Nigerian in the 1990s, vis-a-vis -vis British society here and the wide majority of British society was the weaker economic position. If not that the Nigerian professional, if not that the Nigerian economy was too weak, to sustain even its professionals, the Nigerian professional had no business coming to drive taxis here in the UK or going to do cleaning jobs in the US. They had no business. They'd have stayed in Nigeria and helped build Nigeria. And so this was my first experience of people really talking about race and it was focused on those material things. And this definitely probably affected my view of the whole race equation, looking at it from that perspective, you know, up, to, up till today. And so when I look at the race issue, I look at it I think mostly from the perspective of someone from the global south. And that is where the absolute majority of black and brown skinned people live. Like I mentioned in the book, 90% of the black people in this world live in Africa. 90%.
And in fact, there are more black people in South America than there are in the entire Western Hemisphere. Roughly 133 million people of Afro, Afro descent. And so the, the, the majority of the black population is Global South. It's these financial issues, it's these material issues. Because like I said, the problem, if we're talking about hierarchies, the hierarchy, you know, of the order implicit, however it is, doesn't simply exist because white Westerners want it to exist. It's not a, it's not a matter of willpower or it's not a matter of the ideas they have. It's the material power. That's why, like I say, we, quote unquote, are the immigrants who come here and have to do these jobs at the beginning, etc. We are in that weaker position. Another thing that informed my thinking around race was that when I went to Poland, my mom's homeland, Poland was just coming out of communism. So by European standards, it was a very poor country. The GDP per capita in Poland was roughly 10% what it was in the likes of the UK and Germany. My brother then, I can tell you, was working as an architect uh, for a successful firm in Warsaw, and his monthly salary was the equivalent of roughly $200 a month. That was his salary. As a professional, as, as an, an architect, architect in, Warsaw, in Warsaw, in the capital of Poland in 1995. And there, I saw sort of the attitudes of Poles, because, you know, we are talking about status hierarchies, towards, so, you know, like we talk about racial hierarchies, there's a hierarchy within the quote-unquote white group. So within whiteness, there are hierarchies too. And that's the white Westerners are positioned at the top. And usually the Eastern Europeans or the poorest white majority countries are positioned below. And I saw even in the attitude of Poles towards white Westerners, they looked up to them. And it was because of that wealth gap. So Poles would say, we want our country to be like France. We want to be like Germany. We want to be like Britain. You know, they felt less than. Because this race thing, the material aspect is there and the psychological aspect is also very important. But I say that the material aspect drives a lot of the psychological dynamics. Who feels more than, better than, who feels less than, worse than. And the Poles clearly felt less than and worse than white Westerners, you know. And there was that kind of hierarchy thing. To make things even more interesting, um, Japan and South Korea, the Japanese and South Korean companies in the 90s, you know, the Sonys and Daewoo's, etc., invested a lot of money into Poland, into post-communist Poland. They moved a lot of their production into the former um, uh, communist countries, you know, cheaper labor, well, quite well-skilled in manufacturing, etc. And I know also how the Poles there sort of looked at the Japanese, you know, Koreans who were not white, yeah, who were not white, but were much wealthier than them and were their bosses. So it was Poles who worked for the Japanese and South Koreans, not the other way around. And that also created a dynamic in their head. So they looked up to the Japanese and South Koreans as, you know, from these wild, wealthy countries and all that kind of stuff. And they, they positioned themselves lower than the Japanese. They couldn't bring themselves, they wouldn't imagine bringing themselves to feel superior to the Japanese. Because how? When they're like 50 times wealthier than we are, you know, they're one of the biggest economies in the world from the Polish perspective, you know. And that taught me that, hey, so this race thing really, it's not just the racing, there's some fundamental sort of keeping it going. And there is some dynamic that can change it. Because based on the ideas of white supremacy, Poles should have also felt superior to the Japanese, no? And they should have felt superior to the South Koreans, no? Because white supremacy. But they didn't. So that taught me also a valuable lesson at the time. There's another part of your book that I want to quote, Remy, because I also found it fascinating. The 2021 survey, people from seven Western nations asked whether becoming rich was important to them. 28% said it was. Of people surveyed from four key Asian nations, including Japan, China, South Korea, and Vietnam, 
well over half said it mattered to them. How are wealth and inequality viewed across Africa, given that this is a continent where we are going to see colossal economic and demographic transformation in the coming yes. decades, with estimates of a population reaching up to 2.5 billion in the decades ahead? And, you know, you can maybe talk a little bit about China, because China has very interesting, sometimes paradoxical perspectives on wealth, having emerged from communism, despising wealth, but loving it at the same time. So I'd say, you know, I think generally speaking, people are most interested in the things that are most relevant to their everyday lives. And growing up in a country like Nigeria and most countries of the global south, what is most relevant to people's everyday lives is money. These are countries that don't have, you know, NHSs where you can access, you know, healthcare free at the point of delivery. They don't have generous welfare systems or they don't have any welfare systems. People have to struggle, you know, to get jobs, to be able to pay for their kids' school fees. If mom gets sick, you need to have money to be able to send her to the hospital, etc., etc. So the need for money is much greater in most countries of the global south and in most countries in the world generally than it is in wealthy countries like Britain, for instance, where this, that social security exists. So that's number one. So generally speaking, um, money is in everyday discussions of Nigerians. And people talk about money all the time. And the status hierarchies in the society are built around wealth. And, oh, who has money? How much does that guy have? Oh, that man is a millionaire. Oh, that man is a billionaire. Oh, he has a lot of money. These are the kinds of things people talk about. And they also talk about other countries. So, like I said, growing up in Nigeria, why did we look up to Britain? So, obviously, there was some influence of, you know, British colonialism. And we grew up watching some British TV shows, etc. But the thing people mostly talked about when they came back from the UK or from vacations in London was generally built around the wealth and the material affluence of this society. So people will talk about how much you can earn doing jobs in the UK and how much more that was than you could earn in Nigeria. And they talk about, you know, Harrods and, you know, all the wealth here. That's what people really talked about. And so even me as a mixed race person, let's say for instance, so my mom was white. The main impact that had on how I was treated in Nigerian society was that people assumed my family to be quite well off. Because the association there of whiteness is with wealth. And so the immediate assumption people make if you have a white parent is that most probably your family is quite well off. And they tend to treat you better based on that. Not so much solely on the skin color that, oh, so nice you have light skin color, etc. But the fact, oh, wow, you're probably quite well off somebody's good to be friends with. And so there, if you have 58% of people in Asia say it's important for them to be rich, in Africa, we'd probably be talking about 70, 80, 90% of people who'd say it's important for them to be rich. Not because people are just, you know, mindless materialists there, but because money is so important to sort of just being able to get on with your everyday life. And so what does this mean? This means that the nations and the peoples that people in Nigeria and in other African countries tend to look up to and often sometimes even holding awe are the wealthy nations, which happen very often tend to be the white majority nations. And so this is why you find a lot of Africans still today who you know, look up to white Westerners and look up to white Western nations because of that assumption of wealth. An interesting example, Japan and China. So when I was growing up in 1990s Nigeria, China was a poor country then. And we as kids in Nigeria, we rather look down on China. We didn't see the Chinese as any wow thing because we saw them as a generally poor country. We watched Bruce Lee movies and all that, but that was pretty much the only positive thing with sort of Chineseness. Then I remember Made in China was the label for crap products. 
So people would say, oh, your, your something is made in China. Oh my God, that means it's crap, it's terrible. So generally speaking, we, I'd say, look down on, or definitely didn't look up to the Chinese, but we looked up to the Japanese. Because the Japanese were the ones who had Sony and Nintendo and all these great companies that were making all these computer games and toys that we dreamed of having or the more affluent uh, ones among us has. How do Nigerians look to China now? Uh, completely changed. Now you hear Nigerians saying, you know, oh, China is soon going to take over the world. The Chinese are going to take over the world, you know. So the perception of Chineseness in Nigeria now has risen drastically in line with the wealth of the Chinese. Of course, the Chinese, as I mentioned, have slightly conflicted views about wealth and you point to statistics that show this. So um, uh, like those statistics showed and, you know, why I pointed that out is to show how, you know, differences in sort of the attitudes to wealth, they matter a lot. Because like I say, when people construct status hierarchies in their head, they construct them around the issues that they feel are most relevant, that are most relevant to their everyday lives and that they feel really matter in the world. So th those stats show Brits are the least materially aspirational of the Western nations in that survey. So of seven Western nations there, several European countries and the US, um, just 19% of Brits said it's important for them personally to be rich in their lifetime. The average in, in the West was 28%. Even in America, which is seen as this uber materialist world, just 30% of Americans said it's important for them to be rich. In those Asian countries, the average was 58%. So more than half the people say it's important for me to be rich, even in the ones that have been rich for decades, like Japan. So the Japanese have been wealthy for decades. So it's not just about, you know, poor nations having those kind of aspirations. There's something more than that. So 43% of Japanese people said it's important for them to be rich. So my, the point I was trying to show there, and I talked about sort of African attitude also to wealth, is how practically everywhere outside the West, wealth is unabashedly the key criteria people use for ordering status groups, ordering status in their head, be that of individuals or of groups. Practically everywhere outside the West, the West is the only place where the least attention is paid to actually wealth when it comes to people ordering status hierarchies in their head. And that's because, like I said, these are affluent societies where people don't have to, of course, people have to have jobs here and work, etc. you understand? But that need is not so immediate, it's not so urgent, it's not so big in people's lives. And so the Chinese, like you talk about there, also definitely, I think 50% of Chinese people said it's important for them to be rich. But there's an extra dynamic in China. Because of the fact that it's the Chinese Communist Party that has a firm grip of the economy, it is the, those who end up really rich in China, billionaires, etc., are seen as having ended up that way, not because they were so particularly gifted, but because they were cronies of the Chinese Communist Party bigwigs. So... The system there is seen as a little bit unfair in the sense that it's not, oh, the guy who worked hardest or the woman who worked hardest ends up the richest or, you know, the most brilliant, but it's those who have good connections in the Chinese Communist Party. Whereby generally, if people feel that the system is sort of open and uh, they might tend to sort of um, feel it's fairer and then they don't have such negative feelings towards, you know, rich people because they think they quote unquote deserve it. At the same time that you say, you know, we can't have a debate about race without getting deep into yes. the material realities. It's a lot to do with what takes place in the mind. When people size one another up and make decisions about what value constitutes based on where they think they stand yes. in that pecking order. Definitely. Then, and I want to come back to your book because we're going to talk in a moment about the 
problem of police brutality, particularly in the United States and its relation to the Black Lives Matter movement. The hashtag is now about 10 years old. It first appeared online around then. Um, but the concept of race hasn't always been what we think it is. It hasn't always existed in as high definition as it does now. And that's important to understanding where we've gone to with the race debate today and about tempering how we emphasize race and think about it. Yeah, the idea of race and who belongs to which race has changed enormously over the past 200 years. And there are a number, a series of things I think we, we need to understand, which, which we rarely do about what the concept of race is. The first is that it's a modern concept. And by saying it's a modern concept, I'm not suggesting that in a pre-modern world, people weren't differentiated according to skin colour. Um, the, the certain groups weren't seen as inferior or subhuman. That certainly was the case. It was part of the pre-modern consciousness. But that paradoxically is why modern concepts of race are very different. Because for the idea of racial inequality to have any meaning, you also have to have a notion of equality. And for most of human existence, there simply wasn't a notion of equality. But from the 18th century onwards, the idea of equality becomes central, foundational to many nations, both in Europe and America. The Declaration of the Rights of Man which was at the heart of the French Revolution, or the American Declaration of Independence, both has it, but the American Declaration of Independence has in its first line the idea of human equality. But while at a level of ideas, at an abstract level, equality was now central to the way people thought about the world, in social practice, that wasn't the case. In social practice, this was an age of colonialism, of slavery, of the appalling treatment of the working class, of the appalling treatment of women, and so on. So inequalities became was, is a central part of, of, of societies, even though at an upside level they believed in equality. In a pre-modern world, these kinds of differences would, would have been unremarkable. There was just the way the world was. But now they had to be justified. And race became a way of justifying the, the existence of inequalities in a world that had proclaimed equality was a foundational basis of, of those societies. Certain groups of people were seen by nature as incapable of equality or liberty. And that became the justification. That became the way of bridging the chasm between a belief in equality and the reality of an unequal society. So the, you know, the ancestors of today's African-Americans were not enslaved because they were black, but they came to be see seen as black and as inferior as a justification for their enslavement. Slavery became racialized in a way that slavery never had been prior to that. And so race develops as a way of justifying inequalities in, in a world that, that, that proclaims its belief in equality. And the groups that were seen as racial were often very different from the groups that we now think of as racial. So certainly um, 
non-white black people, Asians, Chinese and so on were seen as distinct races and inferior. But so were factory workers and farmhands, the working class and the rural poor. It may be difficult to conceive of now, but, we, but the way we now think of, and many people think of blacks and whites as anthropologically and racially distinct, 19th century thinkers saw uh, the working class as anthropologically and racially distinct, physically distinct from the middle class. And who was white was also contested. So many groups we now think of as white were not seen as white in the 19th century or, or not quite white. The Irish, the Celts, the Slavs, East Europeans, Southern Europeans, Jews. The only group that was seen definitely as white were Anglo-Saxons. And so the, what, we, what we think of as white, what we think of as distinct races, it's not fixed, and it's important to recognise that because we think about races as, as kind of biologically fixed, and that is to misunderstand both the origins of race and how historically the concepts of race has, has developed. This is very much a point that your book is trying to drive home, isn't it, Grebby? Yes, and I'm, I, I think you know has made a very important point here. And you know, I, I, what I'd add to that is that you know, human beings have always organised themselves into hierarchies. Uh, at the group level and at the individual level and some have always sought ways of justifying their domination over others yeah one such way for instance was coming up with the idea that some people have blue blood that they're aristocrats so people who have the same kind of blood you and me have some great grandparents somewhere in the past seized some land became wealthy and they pronounced themselves aristocrats and that's a way of justifying their domination over the rest of society and them having so much more than the rest of society. And we know that story here, you know, in the UK. Race, for me, I agree with that, McKinnon, was another way of justifying the domination of one group of people over other groups of people. It was very useful. Keenan, I know, is the bigger expert when it comes to the history of race. But I read um, also in my research a, a couple of years ago, that when the first slaves arrived in, in the US in the sort of 16th century, 16th, 17th century, because then there was the idea that all Christians are born equal, many of the slaves then converted to Christianity and on the basis of that claimed equality. And this became a problem. And, I, and, 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 and from what I remember, after this started happening to some significant extent, this is when some in America, some of the you know, white um, uh, plantation owners in America, etc., decided that, well, actually, no, Christianity is not the important uh, fact here. It, the world is not divided into Christian and non-Christian because then we'd have to accept that the blacks are equal to us because they've converted to Christianity. It's actually about race. So it's actually divided into the whites and the rest. Yeah, because that particular d division could have been inconvenient and could have brought the whole system down. So and that goes to what um, uh, exactly what, what, what Keenan is saying. So these systems, yes, have, um, have existed to justify domination. One thing I'd add also to what Keenan said is that he spoke about how, you know, in the pre-modern world, uh, inequality was assumed to be, you know, natural, inherent. That's just the way the world works. I would add that today it's really only or mostly, let me not, let me, let me not be too specific. It's really mostly in the Western world, which is a minority of the world, that the idea of equality is taken as seriously as it is 
and can galvanize people to mobilize for causes as much as it can. So definitely I can tell you that in Africa, equality is talked about sometimes, but no one even really expects it. No one even really expects it. It's not taken seriously. The idea that all human beings are really equal is not really taken seriously. And in political campaigns in Nigeria and in other African countries, nobody even promises that. Nobody even promises that. Because for people to actually believe that equality can be possible, the inequalities must be, they, they can't be that huge. When the inequalities are so huge, people are not even able to imagine living in a quote-unquote equal world. And because the wealth inequalities in Africa are so huge between the haves and have-nots, the have-nots can't even imagine a world in which things would be equal. And so generally speaking, that inequality is more or less accepted. And all you hear politicians talk about and campaigners talk about is that we need to fight poverty. They don't say we need equality because they don't know what is even going to respond to that. Like that's unrealistic. So they talk about fighting poverty. Do they see in African countries equality as a Western neurosis of some kind? Not neurosis. Not neurosis. If you ask, if you, if you ask the average African, would you like a world in which people are treated equally? They'd probably say yes. But if you ask them, do you believe such a world is possible? they'd laugh and say, definitely not. Okay, so not neurotic by definition, but yes. perhaps in the way it's pursued and talked about in the West. So, you know, Tocqueville talked about this in, in his tour of the US, when, um, when he wrote about the US, that it's in societies where um, inequalities are narrowing and there is more equality, that is when people start to notice the actual inequalities. When the inequality stares you in the face once you come out of your house, you don't even see it, you don't notice it. And so people don't agitate that much for that. But in Western societies, which are the most equal of the human societies we have in most spheres, people see it and immediately like, oh, why do they have this and we don't, you know, and the agitation starts. So the question then would be, do I think the world is generally moving, the, 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 the whole world is generally moving in that um, direction of Western kind of thinking about equality? I wouldn't be so sure. I'd say definitely among some groups in many countries, among younger, you know, very educated, let's say, elements in, in Africa and in the global south, people have definitely, they, they believe in the ideas which, you know, are talked about here a lot and, you know, equality and things like that. But the broad swathes of the population, I would say that idea really hasn't yet caught on, unfortunately. You spoke at the very beginning of this, Remy, about the killing of George Floyd and yes. the way that you while others were looking very much to the reactions in America and across Europe and UK, we're looking uh, at reactions in Africa. So I think it's, uh, it's wise that we talk now about police brutality and its uh, importance to the Black Lives Matter movement. Kenan, in your book, you cite a 2020 study by uh, John Feldman, a social epidemiologist, that shows that the correlation between income to talk about wealth and police violence in the US is higher among white people than among black people. And that other data, meanwhile, suggest when income levels are considered, the racial disproportion disappears. Can you unpack that for us and uh, explain a little bit about how police brutality comes into your book and shapes your argument? There is no question that African-Americans are disproportionately killed by the police. But we need to look at that, that issue of disproportion quite carefully. First, because it's still the case that over 50% of those killed by the police are whites. So it's not as if white people are not killed by the police. 
Second, the best marker for police brutality, for police violence and for police killings is not actually race. It is income level. Those areas in America that are of low income have a much higher proportion of police brutality and police killings than those with uh, which are richer areas. That's exactly what you'd expect. You know, um, in, in British terms, nobody would imagine that you'll have police brutality in Chelsea will be the same as police brutality in Newark. And the reason why there's disproportionate killings of, of African-Americans is because African-Americans disproportionately poor and working class. There are lots of reasons, in, um, primarily racism, which lead to that. But nevertheless, the fact that racism means that African-Americans are disproportionately working class should not lead us to assume that it's simply racism that, that, that means that African-Americans are disproportionately killed by the police. Racism is involved, but, but there's a lot more to that. What we've seen in the last 40, 50 years in America is the militarization of policing in America and the use of militarized police to control poor and working class areas. So if you look at the 50% of police killings who, which, which are of white people, that will be disproportionately, but almost entirely, of poor whites and of rural whites. And so the, the issue here is that of the, the disproportionate killings of poor people, of working class people, of whatever colour, and because African-Americans are disproportionately poor and working class, there's a disproportionate killings of African-Americans. And that's important because it tells us that if you just look at the racial aspect, you don't get to the heart of why there is a disproportionate number of killings of African-Americans themselves, because it gets away, because we, we forget that what we're talking about is the militarization of policing and the use of policing to keep control of poor working class areas, white and black. Now, this is relevant to the UK as well. And just to zero in on this, a lot of what you're arguing is that when an overly racialized language around disadvantage and hierarchy is used, it affects more than anything those who are working class and have been disenfranchised economically. And if those people who are disenfranchised economically are also then of ethnic minorities disproportionately, as they are in the UK, what you end up with actually disadvantages the very people it's claiming to help. Indeed. When you bring the question of class into discussions of race, people talk about you being class reductionist, talk about me being class reductionist. And it's a very lazy way of looking at it, because if it's the case... The, the majority of most minority groups are working class and poor. Then to exclude class, not to look at class when you're talking about their, the issues they're based on, is actually to exclude their experiences, the issues that they face. It's a story I tell in, in my book about a strike, a sanitation worker strike in New Orleans. The sanitation workers were mostly African-American, nearly all African-American. And they came out on strike in early 2020, it's about three weeks before George Floyd was killed. The workers were, were primarily black, so were the employers, because they were employed by a black-owned company. 
because as part of his anti-racist drive, New Orleans had um, outsourced his sanitation work to a black-owned company. This was the year of Black Lives Matter, when the question of racism uh, and of black lives was at the global the forefront of global consciousness. But what Black Lives Matter meant was very different on the two sides of the picket line. It's very different for black workers who were being paid poverty wages, who were being uh, denied the right protective equipment. This was in the middle of the COVID pandemic, uh, and who were denied the right to unionize, not by white employers, but by black employers. And so the strike, as I said, was, they came out of the strike that year of Black Lives Matter. They were in strike throughout that summer when there were protests right across America, across the world. And they were forced back to, to, to work that September, having one version none of their demands. So black employers won, black employees lost. And to imagine that there is a single meaning of Black Lives Matter means that those who do lose out, black employees, the uh, black workers, become the forgotten people. And, and it's the middle-class blacks, the already privileged blacks, who gain most fr fr from, that, from that pretense that there is a single black community. It's just absurd. You probably know, both of you, by having looked through this series and seen some of the speakers that I've had on this, that many of them fall into a camp of what we might call post-liberal thinkers, one of whom, David Goodhart, um, you write about in your book, Kenan, and whose praise appears on the back cover of yours, Remy. Uh, but Kenan, you take issue in this book with the post-liberal critique of liberalism and uh, identity politics as a kind of corollary in recent years of liberalism, social liberalism in particular. And you do this not least because you argue post-liberals are every bit as hung up on race as they accuse the woke left of being. That is to say, they've, they've monopolized the concept of race to their own ends. And it's something important to note about intellectual movements that have supposedly pushed beyond race or, or want to see it a different way, but still commit the same mistakes. What I'd say is that post-liberal thinkers are as rooted in, our, in the politics of identity as those they criticise. Post-liberal thinkers, I suppose, are best understood as liberals who become disenchanted with the excessive individualism of liberalism and have moved in a he said, you know, in, in different circumstances, we'd just call them conservatives because they are, they, they, they draw on the conservatism of uh, someone like Edmund Burke. The, the critique of liberalism is often quite acute, critique of not just of individualism, but of the way that many liberals ignore the issue of, of community, of class, um, the way they over-worship the, the market. As you say, yeah, neoliberal technocracy, things yeah. like this, yeah. Um, so so th their critique is often hugely important, but their solutions, because they're rooted in that, in that kind of working conservatism, is inimical to, to everything that, say, I would stand for. Post-liberals are hugely critical, usually, of, of identity politics and see, see identity politics as divisive, and they appeal to a notion of a common good. But the common good to which they appeal is itself understood in identitarian terms. So, you know, a common good understood in terms of nation or place or 
history or culture. And many, many, both post-liberals and um, conservatives these days are hostile to immigration because immigrants can't fit in with that history or culture or sense of belonging. Many bemoan the fact that European cities are becoming less white, that London is will be a, a minority white city soon. Many bemoan the fact that, um, or argue that Europeans, indigenous, what they call indigenous Europeans, are being um, driven out of their homeland, as, the, as they call it, by immigration. So all those are arguments, all those ideas are deeply rooted in an identitarian way of looking at the world. What we're not talking about is for or against identity politics. It's a debate about which kind of identity politics you want to hold on to. They're critical of identity politics when it comes to race or gender or black politics or, or Black Lives Matter. But quite happy to embrace identity politics when it comes to white identity. Many of them talk about the need to, to, talk, to, to embrace white identity, to talk about the white working class. I think it's an absurd term. We, we think about minorities. When we think about minorities, we talk about communities. Minorities belong to classless communities, whereas class becomes something that's applied largely to the, to the white population. And in talking about the white working class, the whiteness often matters more than the class location. So what, what it is, 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 is a way of racializing class identity. And that's hugely problematic. Remy, our, our conservative values, like Kennan has just described there on the part of post-liberals, prevalent in countries within Africa, does flag, family, even faith crop up prominently within cultures that, as you say, have a lot to gain from getting by and are very pragmatic? Is that pragmatism a driver of conservatism? Family and faith, definitely. Uh, flag, probably much less so. Um, so, of course, you know, people from various African nations, if there's a World Cup or there's a, you know, sports World Cup, especially football, um, uh, huge in Africa, then, of course, you know, people sort of rally around the flag and the nation and, uh, and that kind of thing. But the two real drivers, sort of, I'd say, fundamental value um, uh, drivers in, in, in most African nations, that would be family and faith. Africa is definitely the most religious continent in the world. 90% of Africans say religion is important to their everyday lives. That's unprecedented anywhere else. Uh, no other continent comes even close anywhere else in the world. So definitely, um, people don't necessarily see this in terms of what you describe as conservative values. So for instance, on the African continent, that debate between liberals and conservatives is pretty much non-existent. People don't think in those categories. And so the average Kenyan or Zambian uh, talking about family you know, and faith, they wouldn't say they are defending conservative values. Um, uh, funny enough, they'd most probably say they are defending African values. They'd tell you it's an African thing, uh, family, orientation around family, and definitely it was, even in pre-colonial times, so that wasn't something that was imported. So they tell you that's an African value. And when it comes to faith also, even though many of these faiths were imported, if you're talking Islam and Christianity, uh, the average African today will tell you it's an African value in the sense of it's something that they see as differentiating them from much of the rest of the world, especially much of the Western world, which is seen today as non-religious. 
Yeah. So many, you know, Nigerians, Africans would say, you know, white people no longer believe in God. And they think that's a bad thing. Yeah, they think, you know, people here have sort of lost their way morally. I think a lot of post-liberals would would hear this talk of us having lost our way in the West and uh, and say they agree with the Africans who, who see it this way. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that I'm not suggesting that faith, flag and family are inherently conservative. For example, religion's been a very important part to um, civil rights movements in America. So what, what I'm suggesting is that there is that conservative tradition which is rooted in, in, in ideas of faith, family and flag and in which the ideas of, of belonging, of, of, of community, of collective is understood in terms of history and heritage um, and culture rather than about um, the kinds of values or the politics or the um, uh, ideas you, you believe in. The people I associate with, the people I find common cause with are not, as I said at the beginning, uh, people who have the same skin colour as me or the same culture as me or the same identity as me, but the people who believe as I do about how to change the world and the kind of world we want to live in. So in that sense, there's a radical collective universalist tradition, um, which has largely been lost. And it's been lost because the, the, the organisations, the movements which embodied that tradition have gone have eroded um, and it's left us with a sense of social pessimism. We're going to come back in a moment to how we recultivate that radical universalist tradition. Remy, you had a thought you wanted to Yes, I think I, I find it interesting sort of the evolution, I think, of, of some people on the right. So, you know, some people who I think probably may have been admirers of Thatcher in her days when the right was really all about the individual. Reagan, Thatcher, they were all about, you know, Apparently, Thatcher said, I don't know if she really said this, but it's attributed to her. No such thing as society. You just have individuals, you know, and families. And they were very big on focusing on the individual. While back then, the left was talking about groups and, you know, communities. But today, I think because, you know, there's this saying out there that, you know, the right has political power, the left has cultural power. And so I think there's quite a few people on the right now who think individualism is working too much for the left. And that sort of these kinds of the values which individualism, you know, brought to the fore, it's now favoring the left too much. And this is why I think there's some on, on the right who have now sort of rediscovered, have gone from being a neoliberal and individualist to rediscovering the whole value of groups and communities. And are now talking about, you know, oh, you know, we need to think as a nation, as a community, as a society, etc., as a sort of counterbalance as uh, hoping to be able to galvanize enough people to push back against the left, which they see as being way too dominant, especially culturally today. I haven't, I haven't actually met or already read of many um, pre or I should, I should say former Reaganites or Thatcherites conservatives who rediscovered the importance of collectivity and working class unionization so much as those who always believed it and actually look back on the Thatcher years as a great portrayal of conservatism. Those who say that there's really no such thing as the Conservative Party anymore. Just two points. One is in relation to liberalism. There are many aspects of liberalism that are problematic. There are many aspects of liberalism that we need to hold on to. Um, Which in particular? Belief in equality, belief in free speech. There are, those aspects of, 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 um, of liberalism are, are hugely important. 
to the left. I'm, I'm, we should not jettison that. It's one of the reasons I'm not a conservative, because I believe in, in those things. One of the problems, it seems to me, of the way many on the right now look at class, for instance. There's a great play on the right that they're now the defenders of, of the working class. The trouble is, the moment the working class takes action to defend their interests, like they go out on strike, that's the moment the right stops becoming defenders of the working class. The moment they take action, that's when they talk about the need to even further remove the right to go on strike, for instance. So we need to be careful uh, on how we understand what it is to defend the interests of the working class. It's a big question to end on for both of you, but here goes. You both acknowledge identity politics entraps us in a kind of cycle of agonistic despair on issues to do with race. So what would constitute a real, clear-sighted and purposeful step forward towards a better future? Kenan, you argue for a revival of this radical universalist tradition, as you put it in the book, not as an idea, but as a social movement. I want to know what that looks like to you. And then, Remy, I'll come to you after to ask why you think the answer to ending the racial order requires what you call a Marshall Plan for Africa that can allow it to be the solution to its own problems and so raise the esteem and status of black populations everywhere around the world. Kenan, over to you. A radical universalist perspective is a big phrase, but what it means is that we look upon the kind of world we want to create, the kind of society we want to create, in terms of values and policy, rather than terms of identity and race. The, what matters is that we create a world that is more equal, that is defined by economic growth, that is defined by those who deny their rights and those who are denied an equal share of a society's wealth being the ones whose interests we defend. And we can only do that if in every struggle we're involved in, uh, whether it is a housing struggle or it is a struggle over government's migration policies or it is a struggle about wages and costs of living. If what matters is not who you are, where, what you've come from, what your background is, but what it is that we're fighting for, what it is that we're struggling for. That's what matters. And that's got to be at the forefront of every struggle in, in which we're involved. So while the West rediscovers really what has brought it to this point and what it loses of that tradition of universalism to its peril, in Africa, Remy, what is the way forward? So uh, it is estimated that by 2050, uh, there'll be 2.5 billion Africans, uh, which means a quarter of this world will be African. Uh, in 1950, less than 10% of the world was African. So that's a radical transformation of the global demographics. And Africa remains the poorest continent in the world, as I give many statistics um, in the book. I sort of like to think of myself as someone who, when asked the question, you know, who should you feel the most solidarity with or try to, you know, sort of help out the most or sort of, work towards the betterment for, it would be, you know, the, the answer would be the most vulnerable. Whoever that is in any society, whether we're looking internally or if we're looking sort of in that big picture dynamics. 
And I would argue that in a capitalist reality, which is the world we live in, the most vulnerable people usually tend to be the people with the least financial resources. And so those are the people we should sort of um, be thinking about the most, I would say, in our agitations for a better world. And it doesn't matter really whether those people happen to be black or brown skinned or, or white or, 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 or whatever skin they be. We just go, <clears throat> sorry, by that simple category of who are the most vulnerable people in this, in this, um, uh, in, in this scenario. Talking about Africa, as I argue in the book, definitely Africa needs much better leadership, needs much less corruption, and essentially African leaders need to be able to create the kind of environment that we need for African wealth, which is black wealth. Like I said, 90% of the black people just want to live in Africa for black wealth to be multiplied. So that's, that has to be there. That's, that's a given. However, leaving it at that, at just sort of, oh, well, you know, you guys need to get your act sorted out and, and start, you know, running your countries better. And surely you'll catch up with us here in, you know, the West or the other wealthy countries, you know, that is also not true. That's fantasy. So while I say we can't, there's no room for despair, but there's also no room for fantasy. The reality of today is African countries, most African countries simply do not have the financial muscle to tackle the various huge problems which they have, especially with regards to absorbing these expanding populations which we have on the continent. And so some kind of Marshall Plan, I call it in the book, some kind of financial package some kind of sit down between you know the rich world and the poorer countries of the global south um, and poorer countries that are disproportionately overrepresented in africa needs to be had if we're going to have some kind of world that is going to function you know better in the future because as keenan points out if we look at the situation in the u.s with police for instance if we really look at the dynamics we'll see really this is what's going on here is haves and have-nots and you have the U.S. police essentially trying to protect the haves from the have-nots. And because most of the have-nots are black in America, or blacks tend to be disproportionately and they have-nots, you have that issue with police. If you look at the global picture, what annoys a lot of people, a lot of black and brown people, is how immigration is handled by Western countries. Again, this is really a situation of haves. So someone there policing the borders of the countries where there's a lot of wealth, from the have-nots of the global south who'd like to come to those countries, emigrate to those countries for a better life. So without some kind of, you know, I don't believe in an utopia in which we're going to have, you know, everybody's going to have equal wealth, etc. But if we don't have, we need to have some kind of system, some kind of structure, some kind of sit-down that works actively towards minimizing and lessening those huge wealth divides that exist across nations and across racial groups by extension. Which I think underscores the point about universalism. We need a return, not just because of first principles reasoning, but because the fact is in our material realities, our fates are tied up together and will increasingly be as time goes on. You mentioned expanding populations, you mentioned immigration, especially from places like sub-Saharan Africa. It's clear that universalism has to make a comeback at some stage because we can't, we can't carry on dividing ourselves as we have done. Listen, I, I just want to say a big thank you to you both. Remy Adekoya, thank you for coming on. Kenan Malik, congratulations on your books. To repeat those titles then, it's not about whiteness, it's about wealth and not so black and white. A history of race from white supremacy to identity politics. It's been an absolute joy to speak to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.